0: Cinematic installation by Vancouver based media artists Brian Johnson and Anthony Roberts. A three channel vignette based film, The Soft Revolution's dramatic and often comedic character driven vignettes based on the Taoist principles of the I Ching show the pivotal experiences of a year in the life of a vibrant, complicated Gulf Islands family an immersive cinematic experience, the soft revolution explodes the frame of traditional cinema by allowing for avenues of immediacy and improvisation formerly unattainable in the media of film. The show opens on January 22nd at 7pm at the Interurban Gallery on 1 East Hastings Street. The artists will be in attendance.
1: Then there's the utter misery that is college radio, where they apparently just let any bewildered freshman wander into the booth and try to run a radio station. Um, Campus outreach is looking for... Hang on. College radio can pretty much be summed up in five words.
2: CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver.
3: There, My name is Tracy Fuller, and you are listening to The Arts Report on Wednesday, January 28th, 2009. Thanks for joining me. I've got a jam-packed show for you today. I've got a lot of uh, really interesting and, uh, I think, wonderful guests to, uh, to share with you. So I'm going to get right to it. But uh, it's a beautiful day here in Vancouver. And if you're not in Vancouver, I wish you were, because apparently in Ontario it's snowing like a... Well, I mean snowstorm, Um, but yes. Anyways, um, since Tuesday of last week, the PUSH International Performing Arts Festival has been in full swing here in Vancouver. And myself and the entire Arts Report crew have been getting out as often as possible to attend the many events that are going on around the city. Last Friday night, I attended the opening production of Kevin Kern's Skydive, which is now playing at the Arts Club Theatre on Granville Island. Skydive literally defies gravity in theatre by using Sven Johansson's ES dance instruments. The actors are literally raised above the theatrical bar and a quadriplegic man is able to fly throughout this entire 90-minute performance. The story is of two men, a housebound agoraphobic man desperate for change and his brother, who is the lead singer of an 80s cover band desperate for recognition. The play follows the two brothers as they try to reconnect and recognize how to deal with midlife and its crises. Skydive is an action-adventure that pushes the limits of our perception to the breaking point, and it is utterly amazing. I laughed, and I almost honestly did cry. It's definitely a great performance to see. The play premiered in 2007 at the PUSH Festival, and it received rave reviews and critical acclaim at this time. So now it is back, and once it closes at the Arts Club, it will tour across Canada. Skydive was written by Vancouver's very own Kevin Kerr and it stars actors Bob Fraser and James Sanders. Earlier today I was able to speak with Kevin Kerr about Skydive and about the current production and so I'm going to share our conversation with you now. Last time we spoke you were in Vancouver at UBC attending a production of your Governor General award-winning play Unity 1918. Now Skydive is playing as part of the 2009 PUSH festival and it is quite a different production from what Unity was. Can you talk a little bit about how Skydive came about?
4: Sure. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of night and day uh, productions. Yeah. Um, yeah, Skydive came about with a... started uh, a number of years ago with a phone call from uh, Bob Fraser, who's one of the performers in the show. Mm-hmm. Bob and I went to school together, uh, theatre school at Studio 58. Mm-hmm. And he and uh, James Sanders, the other actor and the producer... Um, an artistic director of Real Wheels um, had known each other for many years. They went to college together, and they were looking to do a show together. They'd been uh, some time since they had been on stage, and they were trying to find a piece that that would uh, that that would work for them. And uh, they couldn't find something that they were excited by, and uh, so they decided that they would commission. And they phoned me up and asked if I would be interested in in being uh, uh, part of their process and uh, to write a play, and uh, so that's where it began, and of course it has a number of interesting little uh, additional facets to it.
3: So when when was that phone call? Because the skydive itself premiered at the 2007 Push Festival.
4: Yes, um, the first version of it premiered in 2007, uh, so two years ago, and the development process from the very beginning uh, to that version was a couple of years. I think I think that phone call might have come in the like sometime in the l- late fall of 2003. We didn't really get together and start talking about it till early I think 04, and then began the uh, process of development, uh, w- which went in little chapters over the next couple of years, uh, various workshops and um, experiments, and eventually uh, starting to push towards a production mm-hmm. uh, draft.
3: Uh, in their director's note, Roy uh, Soret, is it? Yeah, Roy Sorette. and uh, Stephen Drover described the creation as an adventure, yeah, um, were they involved in the production from the start as well, or
4: um they uh, yeah, fairly early on, um we got going uh, um originally, just the three of us uh, uh, brainstorming and jamming. Um, <laughs> going down to the Ivanhoe pub on Main Street and having our little um, uh, work sessions <laughs> uh-huh. and then uh, uh, coming up with different ideas. I was doing some sort of just uh, 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 sketches of scenes and characters and stuff and throwing them their way. And and uh, a bunch of different early ideas kind of got bandied about. And then uh, uh, one night, um, Bob had this sort of uh, beer-induced vision of uh, two actors falling from... The grid as a way to open a show that was sort of startling and had not been seen before and uh, it seemed kind of outrageous and impossible and we laughed it off and, and uh, but I couldn't stop thinking about that image of mm-hmm. these two guys in space and it made a lot of sense uh, in a weird sort of you know intuitive way even though we didn't know what that meant so I, kept b- I came back to them and said I can't stop thinking about that and I, w- I want to find a way to pursue it and then James revealed that he knew this uh, choreographer from Victoria named Sven Johansson, who mm. uh, had designed these incredible instruments, these uh, devices that allowed dancers to fly. Um, and uh, I had seen them in performance before, and as soon as James said he knew this guy, I got super excited and said, <laughs> okay, that's, uh, that's kind of, I think, our, our, our key right there. So James called Sven up and asked if he wanted to participate, and Sven got on board, and we did some early Physical workshops to see if we could do this, um, to see if these you know, two actors could uh, could actually. Um, uh fly, and, uh, and, and with the premise being a whole show in these instruments, which hadn't been done before. Of course not. Uh, uh, most of the time these instruments are used, dancers fly for maybe 10 or 15 minutes max, and so um, to do a 90-minute play with two performers um, in these instruments seemed like a big challenge. So we had to make some big experiments, and then at, after that, after the first workshops, the, the characters started to emerge and early ideas for story. And then Roy Surrett, uh, um came on board. Bob uh, asked if he would be uh, uh, interested in coming on as director. And um, and then shortly after that, uh, uh, Stephen Drover joined the team as well. And so they were there uh, at that point. So fairly early on and very influential in how the whole thing uh, unfolded.
3: Well, it is an absolutely unique opening. And the whole play itself, uh, using the uh, ES dance instruments are just takes you to the whole theater to another place because the actors they come out almost over the audience at mm-hmm. times and circle and it is very dance-like as well at the same time
4: yeah it's usually theatrical which is what I love about it it's also um in terms of what in it enabled us to do and in, in, in kind of um creating a fluidity of space and, and, and movement it allowed us to I think um uh explore a much more cinematic um, uh kind of structure to the story with uh, uh scenes uh quickly moving uh in time and location, uh because the instrument sort of afforded us a uh an easy sort of uh means of being able to just um Because um, trans- the whole piece has a sort of heightened uh, non realistic kind of um, uh Quality about it because the actors are flying. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, once you make that kind of initial uh, leap, um, then scenes can can flow and transform place to place and stuff, which then allowed for this kind of, as I say, sort of cinematic quality uh, in the writing, which I really I really enjoyed.
3: Mm-hmm. And in in your own program note, you say that there are actually two stories contained in Skydive. Can you explain what you mean by that?
4: Um, well, yeah, there's uh, there's the story that. The fictional story of the play um, and and that's you know one thing uh, the audience goes on that ride. but the sort of sort of story around that, the super story I guess uh, that surrounds the play is the is the actual kind of uh, story of James and Bob and the creation of this piece and kind of the reality of, of, of who they are and um, as I mentioned, they, they had known each other for a very long time. Uh, one of the things you know that uh, when I first uh, was invited on board and got to meet them uh, was uh, the, uh, the the first kind of big um, uh, variable to consider was that James was a quadriplegic mm-hmm. and um, and uh, he had um, had an accident when he was 19 and and um, so Bob knew him before and, a- and after that point and they had remained really uh, close and. Um, and then James continued on his pursuit of his uh, theater career and um, and obviously there's lots of challenges in that, but uh, he his uh, his goal was simply to be a uh, uh, you know a working uh, artist and this was one of the big uh, goals of the show was to create a piece that could be performed by the two of them mm-hmm. and um, with the big thing that I was really appreciative of in terms of a kind of the, the agenda was they wanted to, James really was interested in a piece that wasn't you know about an issue you know about uh a play that was about you know uh being quadriplegic or about disability per se right. but that it was just a, 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 you know we wanted to uh, have a story that was really um, engaging and fun and and um pushed the limits and was surprising and and dangerous and uh mm-hmm. and um, and that in a way the 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 audience um, uh, experience of, uh, or understanding of the disability experience comes through just the engagement of watching a play and kind of in a way forgetting about the fact that somebody happens to, happens to be differently abled. Absolutely. And, um, and, and that, um, and that's so that it's not about trying to, you know, I don't know, teach some lesson or, be, right. it, it's just about breaking down some preconceptions and some, mm-hmm. uh, 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 and, and, and looking at, uh Uh, Physicality in a very different way, and I really, really dug that. And uh, so much of the show was fed off of of the energy and relationship of these two guys. You know, Mm. the the pieces say a total work of fiction, but but the chemistry is so authentic to who these two guys are. And for me as a writer, it was so thrilling and rewarding and incredibly um, gratifying to have these two really incredibly passionate and honest and open individuals who really just put themselves out there for all aspects of the show and, and allowed for some really great kind of explorations and discoveries.
3: Definitely, and that so shows through. I mean, there is that authenticity of the relationship that they share, whether or not the audience knows it because of their history or from reading the program or just knows it from watching the two actors on stage. It's it's palpable and, and it's the ending is I am not going to give it away but it is just such a such a roller coaster ride because the play itself is amazingly entertaining as well as being very frightening and very challenging and taking a lot of risks. I mean, there is the whole musical aspect of the uh, the show that I wanted to ask about as well because it brings such a, the music, the soundtrack, <laughs> it brings such a, a sense of nostalgia and time and humor and place to the show. Can you talk about how the music got involved?
4: Um, well, yeah, I think, um, uh, I mean, the thing is uh, the three of us sort of share a kind of commonality of age and generation and stuff. So as uh, I started to experiment with the, the uh, ideas of the characters in, in here, early on, there was a, a kind of something fun about uh, one of the characters who's played by James being a kind of an aging sort of cover band uh, lead singer um, and his sort of ties to his glory days. And so that brings back to sort of the kind of reflection on, um, their youth, which then takes us kind of into the eighties, which of course was a, you know, a common sort of touchstone for the three of us, you know, as we, as we reminisced and laughed and joked about the era and the music that we all were familiar with. And so the soundtrack for me, as I just began working on it, it was, I like writing with music kind of playing as it is. And so, um, you know, pulling out the old cheesy '80s uh, pop tunes and stuff like that, and just letting them sort of filter in, provided kind of a sense of the energy. But it also ended up forming parts of the narrative as well, as uh, as this part of uh, a character's background kind of started to get fleshed out, to, right. to let him be a, a, a former musician, cover band playing guy, mm-hmm. and I mean, uh, for
3: it to sort of culminate in Madonna's "Like a Virgin," yeah. was entirely <laughs> unexpected, but absolutely. <laughs> Completely rewarding. The entire audience was clapping, singing along. That's really, crazy. really a wonderful moment.
4: Yeah, yeah. I was very, uh, um, <laughs> I was very committed to this <laughs> silly idea that was uh, re- originally received with a bit of skepticism. <laughs> <about> <laughs> kind of centering a scene on Madonna
3: to convince others about this not actually seeing it whether that it might be a little bit of a stretch of imagination but <laughs> yeah. once you're there so, yeah it's just so perfect <laughs>
4: yeah it was very very fun and uh, you know with a great uh, obviously team uh, creative effort there in terms of figuring you know out uh, the choreographic kind of uh, elements of it and um, and it's sort of the layers of its reveal and stuff so yeah it was yeah uh, it was very it was a lot of on the creative process for sure for things like that and it was a really you know it's a really great team of people on all levels um um that uh that we're you know um uh, building it
3: right well kevin thank you so much for speaking with me again it's really uh, my pleasure to be able to uh Connect with you, and for our listeners to be able to talk to you about all the wonderful plays that are going on in Vancouver, and that year, and the Canadian theatre scene, etc. So thanks yeah, again for joining. Yeah, it was
4: great talking with you again, Tracy. So yeah, thanks so much.
3: Kevin Kerr is the playwright behind um, the Push Festival's Skydive performance. And uh, when I said like a virgin there, what I really meant was like a prayer. So fading in a little bit of our favorite madonna <laughs> i really honestly i can't tell you how wonderful this moment is at in the play uh just get out there and see it it's on stage at the arts club theater's granville island stage until february 7th running as part of the 2009 push international performing arts festival thanks again to kevin kerr who spoke to me earlier today from his office in edmonton alberta get tickets and for those of you who are listening out there right now and if you want to head out this year the uh push festival is supporting something called club push which is a night of sort of cabaret acts and different things um i've got a set of tickets to give away for tomorrow night's club push i'm not exactly sure who's playing off hand but if you want to head out to the push festival for free you and a friend can go to the club push Tomorrow night, that's Thursday, January 29th. If you give me a call here right now at CITR, the number is 604-UBC-CITR. That's 604-822-2487. And I look forward to your call.
0: On February 8th at 8 p.m., the Chan Center and the Push Festival present New York City's avant-garde ensemble, Bang on a Can, All-Stars, part rock band, part amplified chamber group, performing works by Brian Eno, and from Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore. And on February 15th at 8 p.m., the Chan Center and Kickstart Disability Arts and Culture present Weights, a live performance with Lynn Manning, a riveting one-man play told by actor-storyteller Lynn Manning about how his life changed forever when a bullet, shot in a crowded Los Angeles bar, robbed him of his sight. The show opens with BC singer-songwriter and recent Canadian Aboriginal Music Award winner Krista Couture. Tickets at Ticketmaster's, student ticket pricing available for both shows. For more information, visit chancenter.com
3: You are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM right here in Vancouver. My name is Tracy Fuller. Thanks again for tuning in today. I've got a number of other things on the bill, but first I just wanted to announce, unfortunately, that uh, John Updike, the author of many, many acclaimed books, actually, he wrote over 50 books in his lifetime, did die yesterday, I believe. Uh, He died at the age of 76 of lung cancer, and uh, John Updike won two Pulitzer Prizes for Rabbit is Rich and Rabbit at Rest, and he will be sorely missed. That's John Updike. All right. (laughs) Yes, it is true. The Vancouver Opera Company's box office, office records have been shattered. Yes, their new production of Carmen is officially their fastest selling production ever. Vancouverites have been seduced by composer George Bizet's Fiery Gypsy, and tickets are selling in record numbers. The French opera takes its audience members into smoke-filled taverns and serenades them with unforgettable music that pulsates with erotic power. We witness sinister felonies, uninhibited dancing, love, murder, and betrayal. Yes, the best of it is in, is all in this wonderful opera. Now, the story of Carmen, uh, its well, she herself is a fiery factory worker who is arrested for assault, and Don Jose is her dutiful guard. But Carmen casts a gypsy spell on Don Jose, which ignites his passions and triggers his tragic descent. He deserts the army for Carmen, abandons his family for a life of crime, and when Carmen finally does reject him for a prize-winning bullfighter, Jose is engulfed in je- a jealous rage, forcing him to commit a shocking act of revenge. I went to see the opening performance of Carmen this weekend, and it is one unforgettable opera. You'd, you, people will remember it m- just as much for its thrilling drama as its irresistible music. And uh, the rising Canadian tenor David Pomeroy is playing in the Vancouver Opera Company's uh, production. He's playing the lead male role of Don Jose. And uh, David's incredible voice has caught the attention of artistic directors around the world. And I actually had the opportunity to speak with the Newfoundland native earlier today. So here's our com- my conversation with David Pomeroy. David Pomeroy, uh, when you were a young boy growing up in Goulds, Newfoundland, did you have any idea that you would be singing in opera houses around the world at this point in your life?
1: Well, that's a funny question. Uh, no, I think what I thought I was going to be doing when I was a teenager was probably fronting some heavy metal band. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, when I was a kid, I did take classical lessons. I studied with my grandfather, who was, a, you know, who had a doctorate in music. He was a professional musician in Newfoundland, and he taught me singing and piano when I was a boy um so i did have that background and but when i became a little bit older and uh was a teenager i was playing guitar and and singing in a heavy metal band right (laughs) throughout high school
3: well that's quite um quite a far cry from uh singing uh uh carmen on stage here in vancouver
1: (laughs) i mean that's what people say but in my mind it's not really for me it's it's the same kind of thrilling edge, and, I mean, for me, singing singing this kind of role or singing the operatic stuff that I do sing, I almost feel like I'm a rock star, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sing almost in the same way. I mean, it's different. Of course, it's a different power and a different, uh, you know, formal kind of training. But I've, I find similarities in there, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. So was it... Was it an active choice on your part, or how did, how did the transition go? I know you studied music as an undergraduate.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, um, I went to Memorial University of Newfoundland, and I was studying uh, music there, and I was, uh, my major was, a sing- was being a, a singer, taking voice.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, at the time, my first year of university, I still had my band uh, that we were playing, you know, clubs in Newfoundland and stuff, um, and I think I went to university with the, with the thought of, okay, I'll get a music degree and I can teach music and maybe teach singing and sort of have my band on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just really got hooked into the classical style and the, the formal training that, that I was undergoing. And with the support of a few teachers who really suggested that I uh, maybe like, look at switching routes... Uh, I just did, you know. I started listening to some opera and started singing some, and I got hooked, and I ended up my third year university. I was out of the band. I quit that whole thing, and mm-hmm. I pursued a whole different avenue.
3: Crazy. So yeah. I know that you went. You started studying with the Canadian Opera Company in Toronto.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, did my, uh, I did my master's at U of T after I did my graduate in Newfoundland, uh, which was the opera school at U of T. Mm-hmm. So I went there for a couple of years, and, and that was my you know, post-secondary education.
3: Right. And um, f- so what was the first big performance, uh, the one that y- you think really sort of launched you into this operatic stratosphere?
1: Um, I mean, I guess there's there's been like a lot because I've been I consider my, I, I think I've been singing professionally for the last 10 years. I mean, when I when I joined the Canadian Opera Company Ensemble, um I guess the first big role I had that was main stage at the Canadian Opera Company was the novice in Billy Budd, which was kind of a breakthrough for me. But but you know, I I guess it was all kind of small stuff until maybe three or four years ago, when I really hit the big stages and started to uh, you know, the Canadian Opera Company offered me the title role of Faust, Mm -hmm. which followed by Metropolitan Opera debut and uh, several more bookings into uh, a whole other, you know, stratosphere of repertoire and and more dramatic kind of stuff.
3: Uh, That must be thrilling. I mean, you talk about the thrill of being a rock star, but I mean, being able to sing these amazing works all over the world, I I can't imagine what that's like.
1: It's thrilling, and it's it's a dream come true, really, you know. Uh, I love what I do. I love my job. I think I'm very lucky to be given the talent and opportunity by these people who support me to to do what I do. And, you know, I think for the most part, I'm sort of reaching my goals. Uh, I'm 35 now, and Mm -hmm. uh, I still have a long road ahead of me. I I hope to sing for another 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, At least, let's say. I mean, I think 20 years, I'll be happy if I can do another 20, and then I'd certainly like to maybe just take it easy and, and do some teaching and pass on what I've learned to the next generation. Uh, like my teachers and mentors are doing for me. You know, they retired and they're they're helping me and teaching me. I'd like to do that for some young, talented person as well, you know.
3: That'd be amazing. Yeah. So so now you're here in Vancouver. Have you been having a good time with the Vancouver Opera Company?
1: Yeah, they're fabulous. I mean, Vancouver Opera are, you know, I guess they're the second largest opera company in Canada next to the Canadian Opera Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the level, the, the the high level of artistic quality that goes on here is is really something. It's a, It's a really... Uh, it's a standout company. Um, the orchestra is phenomenal. Uh, all the staff is, is wonderful. You know, they, they hire amazing singers. It's, uh, it's just been a real joy being here. And I was here five years ago when I was just finishing my uh, early training at the Canadian Opera Company and did a small role, mm-hmm. and I loved it then. Um, but, you know, now it's, it's just fantastic. And, and uh, the, the head guys, Jim and, uh, and Tom, are, are wonderful as well.
3: And the, the opportunity to sing Bizet's Carmen is wonderful. I, I must ask that the, the story of Carmen is about this woman who just entrances your character, Don Jose. And I, I have to know whether or not you've ever been madly in love the way that your character is.
1: I think, I, I think we've all loved and we've all lost. Uh, you know, when you get, um, I mean, I assume that people do. I mean, I know I've loved and, mm-hmm. and, and I am in love. And I don't think uh, to the point of José, because uh, José is a madman, you know. Yes, um,
3: in the end, at least.
1: It, well, no, I mean, even in the beginning, uh, the, the thing that people don't know about this character is that in the libretto, the original story, that, uh, I mean, José has already killed a man. Oh, um, before the opera even begins in the, in the original story of, of, the, of the Carmen and, and his life, you know? Hmm. Um, and in the tale, he also kills another man on the way before he kills Carmen, so he's actually killing people. Jeez. <laughs> he's, he's quite a crazy character, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when, when the opera begins, he's sort of being... The, the character is supposed to be played a, an upright individual, a man who's trying to make amends and, and, and just sort of stay on the right track which is why he's joined the Dragoons and he's a, he's a member of the army and all this stuff. He's trying to get his life on track and and, and stay away from trouble, which is why he sort of, you know, doesn't uh, right away, like, take to Carmen's advances and all of that stuff. But he just can't resist himself because he finds her to be so uh, so alluring, you know.
3: Well, she is absolutely, she enthr- entrances almost all the men and yeah. some of the women that she meets on
1: stage. That's right. But, you know, she's a real, uh, she's a... <laughs> She's a real B-I-T-C-H, you
3: know? <laughs> oh, yes. And
1: she, she deserves what she got. <laughs> mm.
3: I guess I guess that's subjective. I think some people would would uh, say that perhaps uh, she got the short end of the stick, yeah, uh, so well,
1: to speak. Yeah, well, I mean, Carmen is not a nice woman. Carmen so is an evil woman. She's filled with evil, yeah. She's filled with fun and sexuality and but she she's a temptress and you know she's a she's a she's a gypsy woman who who's uh, played her part in in having people killed uh you know i mean she takes jose and and i mean she she ruins lives you know
3: so then why why are we so i mean the Vancouver Opera company's production has had record sales for this production the ballet is putting on a version of carmen later this year why are we so Interested or uh, entranced by Carmen? Why is this story so?
1: Well, I think it's a. I just think it's the. I mean, the, the, for one, it's it's such a famous opera. I mean, it's one of the most famous operas ever written, and I think it's because the one, the music is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Two, there's so many interesting uh, characters that. Have so like so much personality and get to show it in their role between growing from the first part of their character to the end of it. The story is very gripping and engaging. Like everybody can relate to it. It's like any new Hollywood movie now. It's all. Mm-hmm. A, I mean, it's a it's a story that's full of of love and full of hate and full of passion and full of violence. I mean, it's got everything for everybody. You know, yeah, it's got it all. Yeah, it really does.
3: Well. It's been my pleasure to be able to see the production last Sunday. It's running throughout the week. And uh, thank you so much, David Pomeroy, for joining us here on The Arts Report. And uh, have a great time for the rest of time in Vancouver. Where are you off to next? Uh,
1: After this, I'm heading back to Toronto to sing uh, the lead uh, tenor, Rodolfo, in the Canadian Opera Company's production of La Boheme. Hmm. So that'll run until May 23rd. Wonderful.
3: Yeah. Wonderful. Well, best of luck with everything.
1: Thank you very much.
3: That was Newfoundland native uh, David Pomeroy. I reached him at his hotel here in Vancouver uh, earlier this afternoon. And the Vancouver Opera Company's production of Bizet's Carmen is going to be on stage at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre for only six passionate performances. So for those of you who are interested in uh, getting out to see it, make sure you visit the Queenie's box office um, before the production closes on February 5th. And this is this is not David Pomeroy, but this is just a little bit more of uh, Bizet's wonderful, wonderful opera. I'm going to play it here in the background while I uh, talk a little bit about, oh, you know, our government. Yes, the budget came through the other day, and uh, after last year, 2008, when uh, our wonderful Conservative Party cut almost $45 million from arts and culture budget, they have uh, done a little bit of a better job this year, um, ho- putting a little bit more money back into the arts. Uh, uh, according to the conservative government, they are giving two, about two hundred and seventy-six million new dollars in funds, which uh, is generally good news. Um, most of the arts directors and persons in the in Canadian arts are quite happy to hear that this money is being donated, although. There, I think people are still keeping their reservations as to whether or not it actually gets there in the end. Um, most of the of the funds are slated to go towards infrastructure, festivals, and training. About a hundred million will go um, to the Arts Presentation Canada program, which helps, com- and the Building Communities Through Arts and Heritage program, which supports arts festivals across the country. That'll be a hundred million over two years, and. Um, That would largely benefit um, large arts groups like Luminato, the Just for Last Festival, the Cultural Olympiad, the Montreal and Ottawa Jazz Festivals, Magnetic North Festival, etc. And then uh, about 60 million is supposed to be dedicated to the Cultural Spaces Canada program. Um, which uh, supports construction, renovation, and improved accessibility to arts and heritage structures. So that's basically uh, helping out galleries, uh, the Royal Conservatory of Music, um, Fine Arts Arts Forums, the Banff Centre, etc. My only concern as an individual is to think that perhaps smaller groups will not be able to get as much funding and perhaps... uh, groups that are not already big names without a lot of um, media support, um, corporate support, et cetera, that they're, they may be left out of the loop in this budget. Um, there's no rejuvenation of the prom arts program or trade resources program or any of the programs that were cut last year in, that mainly help Canadian artists uh, s- promote their works abroad. So. There are some drawbacks, but in general, I think everyone's quite happy to see two pages of the budget uh, devoted to Canadian arts and culture promotion, especially in these bleak economic times that are awaiting us supposedly in the future. So uh, I'm going to give a wary kudos to our government for supporting the arts, and I, I really hope everything works out in that vein in the end. Now here's a quick PSA, and I'll bring you back to the Arts Report. My name is Tracy Fuller, and thanks for joining me today.
2: Next Wednesday, January 28th, join Amnesty International for a night of info and entertainment. The evening will highlight local bands and guest speaker Don Wright, the regional coordinator for the Yukon and BC Amnesty International. Entries by donation with proceeds going to victims of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. If you want to learn more about Amnesty, meet great people and listen to local musicians, come to the gallery in the sub at 7.30pm next Wednesday. Hope to see you there.
3: Hey there again. This is Tracy Fuller on the Arts Report. Um, some The new discorder has just come out. It has just arrived in the station today. It looks beautiful. Uh, right here on the front page, is Finding the Finding Things issue, a guide to Vancouver that will introduce new wonder into your life. Plus her jazz noise collective, clips, transmission, tight, solid, and pretty maps. Yes, it's a whole new... Discorder Magazine for 2009, so uh, check it out. It is uh, it is really full of beautiful, pretty pictures and a great calendar that's all, got all the greatest events going on, all the musical events going on. Speaking of which, um, tonight at the Biltmore, Matt and Kim will be playing, and then on Friday night, um, uh, the Supreme Beings of Leisure will be heading into town and playing a show again at the Biltmore. I've got a track waiting for you up from that but before i play it i just have to mention today in the vancouver sun in the first section of the vancouver sun albeit on the editorial page the op-ed page but there was an article another article about michelle obama's wardrobe and i just i have to put it out there and i i don't like editorializing on the show but really people uh, can we stop commenting only on what our fem- female um, role models and or politicians and or persons in government are wearing, what they look like? Why do we care? Why, why does the fact that she wore a yellow dress or something on the inauguration day that's light for the future? Give me a break. Seriously. Uh, if I have to read another article about what Michelle Obama is wearing, I'm going to scream. I'm going to scream right into this um, microphone and uh, it won't be hurting people. There might be accidents. Anyways, uh, speaking of President Obama, he is arriving in Canada on February 19th to meet Stephen Harper. It is his first official foreign trip as the President of the United States. So he'll be heading up to Ottawa on the 19th of February. Welcome to Canada, Mr. President. And without further ado, this is The Supreme Being of Leisure. It's an older track of theirs, but it's one that I actually performed to way back when in Toronto. So I I hope you enjoy it.
5: that's asked for and love is steering you to the inevitable but you can't stop trying oh you may up crying but you know me i can't tell truth from fiction playing princess while you're off there somewhere else I was too worried I was too worried about someone else I didn't know the truth was mine I never meant for you to feel for you so
3: So that was uh, Truth From Fiction by uh, Supreme Beings of Leisure, and they will pl- be playing a show at the uh, Biltmore Cabaret this Friday night. And um, just another, um, before we, I move on to my next very exciting guest, um, uh, I do have those two passes to Club Push, and I've pulled up the uh, the agenda for Thursday, January 29th at Club Push. It's actually an excellent night to go. So. I mean, if you're out there and you're listening and you want to go to Club Push, give me a call or send me an email at arts at citr.ca because tomorrow at 9 p.m. there's going to be 20-minute musicals by Veda Healy. Veda Healy? Uh, he- Veda Hilly. Veda Healy. You see, my Joanna Chapman-Smith is my next <laughs> guest, and I was going to give her a formal introdu- introduction, but she's just sort of jumped in here, so I've... Uh, but that's actually a big help because I have no idea how to pronounce.
6: You'll you'll learn that name very well. She's uh, one of the very popular ones in Vancouver.
3: Well, you see, I remember this because I I came to uh, see you last year, and it was on a night that she was playing, and with oh, the Wiseau. Yes, yeah, and yeah. Uh, no one. Well. At, when I arrived, I was horrendously early, but there was no one <laughs> in, no one in the your venue, <laughs> yeah. and you blamed it. Well, not blamed it, but you <laughs> said that you, the, the crowds were probably divided between the two of you. Oh, absolutely. She's they, She was having a CD release, and she's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, so are you, but we're going to get to that. But oh, before but we get to that... Yes, so the agenda at the PUSH Festival is uh, 20-minute musicals with Jeff Berner as well. And so these are short-form 20-minute musicals created by local and international artists pushing boundaries in independent experimental music and multidisciplinary art. And um, so you head out there, you can listen to these uh, 20-minute musicals. Um, th- Bill Richardson from the CBC is going to be... Uh, going to be there and hosting the evening and then at 11 o'clock The Beige is going to hit the stage and uh, they play some sort of jazzy music rootsy, uh, off-kilter pop leanings so you never know, it could be a great night but I would definitely say uh, head out there give me a call here at C I T R. that's 8222487 to get passes to Club Bush um Anyways, uh, so, on to my next guest. Hello. Hello. This is Joanna Chapman-Smith.
6: Hello, everyone.
3: Um, she she and I have known each other for a tremendously long time. A very long time. But um, I'm so pleased to be able to bring her into studio today. She's got a new album coming out. It is her sophomore album called <laughs> Contraries. And I, I like saying sophomore because no one actually says sophomore <laughs> in Canada. I've never even... I remember reading, what is it, um... Sweet Valley High when I was in high school and thinking. And what sophomore the- year, Yes, yeah. and what the mm-hmm. hell is that? I have no idea. I know. It took me a while too. However, this uh, sophomore album mm-hmm. is very exciting. It's got a uh, klezmer roots is what I'm reading. And um anyways, before we get to our discussion, the she the C D launch for contraries is at the Ukrainian Hall this Friday. That's January thirtieth, eight oh five East Pender. The doors are at eight PM and the show is at nine and tickets are on a sliding scale from seven to $10, and, well, you'll just find out. In the next 15 minutes, you will realize that there is no other place you should be on Friday. So, uh, Joanna, thank you so much for coming into studio. My pleasure, absolutely. So, the new album, Klezmer? This is what I'm reading, and all these uh, reports says that Klezmer influences a a lot of...
6: Yeah, um, the Klezmer thing's on the go right now. It's actually, Klezmer is one of the influences. There's also just sort of a general Eastern European and then also latin influences there's there there are a lot of different influences on the album but um yeah when you listen to the album you can hear that
3: um jewish music has been Influencing me a lot, <laughs> huh. just recently, or is this like for over a long time? I know you you started to play the clarinet what back in grade six. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were we went to the same school and uh, we did. Uh, I started at the cello in grade six, and Joanna took up the. You're still you playing. Still play? Oh, I wish. Mm-hmm. I, I played for nine years though, did and you? then and then awesome. university, unfortunately, got in the way. But I'd love to pick it up again.
6: Oh. I wish everyone still played all their instruments. We'd have these wandering. Potential orchestras. Well,
3: you yourself are a wandering orchestra. You, what do you play? <laughs> guitar, piano, uh, clarinet. Uh, what else?
6: Mandolin, lap steel, accordion, mm, Cord- penny whistle. like the penny whistle. <laughs> Indonesian instruments.
3: Do we hear all this on the new album? Will we um, hear
6: you play most On the things? album, I'm playing clarinet, piano, and guitar. I think that's it. Oh, I play triangle for one song. Oh, very lovely. exciting. Very lovely. Exciting
3: okay so what's what's up with the new album like where is this taking you from from your first
6: well do you want do you want to shall we do a journey shall we do a song from yes. the old album and then a song from the new album please please oh this is exciting okay well then what am i going to play from the old album um i know i should have had this thought through okay no. It, can you hear the guitar well here?
3: I, I think it, it sounds okay. I can bring in I'll bring in the second mic uh, if if I'm hearing some lows, but this is Joanna Chapman Smith performing live at CITR 101.9 Do
5: you feel that when we touch? Say that you don't want me But you come back to my bedroom door And stare longingly Well, for now you are my baby So I'll put you to bed And I'll remember sweet head But then I'm closing my door until morning Oh, I am closing my door To close my eyes and feel for love And I want to be done with you Because I know that I don't love you It just feels like I do All those times you gave me apologies Every time I gave them away I knew if one of them never got through I'd be ready to be done with you So for now you are my baby So I'll put you to sleep And i run my fingers And I will weep But then I'm closing my door Until morning Oh yes, I'm closing my door Until morning
3: Beautiful. Thank you. So that's from the first album. And the name of that track?
6: It's called "Closing My Door."
3: Closing my door, and it, it strikes me as almost like a a lullaby. Mm-hmm. Sort and, of
6: is. Mm-hmm. A lullaby for someone who wants to get into your bed and you don't want them to. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Stay get out. Night. <laughs> I'm trying to say this as nicely Do as possible. <laughs> Okay, so yeah. the general tone of the first album is...
6: Is sort of more,
3: uh, more folky like
6: that. Singer-songwriter, folky. Um, and that was when I, just, I I was just sort of finishing school and I was into singer-songwriters a lot and I um, had a lot of Eastern Canadian influence and loved Sarah Harmer and Sarah uh, McLaughlin all these things. And then between then and now I started playing for dance classes which exposed mm. me to a lot of different kinds of rhythms and really just sort of opened me up in, in a lot of exciting ways and I I was working with a lot of local artists who influenced me I was doing backup vocals for Sarah, Sarah McDougal who's amazing she's local and she's from Sweden and she does sort of uh, this European stuff like you know lots of these rhythms and stuff right. um, and uh, and yeah, just a lot of a lot of things happened, and I grew as a songwriter. And I can I can
3: play you one of these too. Sure, I um I was I was reading through that there's that your the last song on the new album is uh, dedicated to one of the dancers, was it? Um, oh, one of the little dancers. Yeah, I'll tell you that
6: that story afterwards because it's on piano, so I can't oh, play it Oh, okay, anymore. no, fair but, enough. I'll play you one um, that's in the arbit- it's in the Contraries theme. Contraries is the album, of course, mm-hmm. um, and this is called Arbitrary Lines.
3: And this is Joanne Chapman Smith.
5: Where are you from? Or better yet. Where are your parents from? Or should I ask after your particles, your ashes and your dust? These arbitrary lines, they're getting in my way. They're getting in my way. These arbitrary lines, they're getting in my way. They're getting in So what is pure and when is right How are natural and real Where do these lines first come from Who marks them down and why these arbitrary lines, they're getting in my way. They're getting in my way. These arbitrary lines, they're getting in my way. They're getting in my way. Arbitrary lines, ooh. He took my heart He took my home, he took everything I own But who am I to draw a line that says what's his and what is mine But then again, sometimes I need a line to lead the way and then again, to whisper sweetly, to hold me close and say, these arbitrary lines, they're getting in my way, they're getting in my way, these arbitrary lines, they're getting in Ow,
3: that was awesome, <laughs> Joanna Chapman Smith with arbitrary lines right here at CITR. That's um, I have to start off by saying that's hilarious in the beginning <laughs> because I know your brother very well. I know your family actually quite well, and everyone every time that daniel or yourself or tim where are you from, where are you from? <laughs> and it's it's so amusing because your father is from new zealand you have there are brazilian influences there yeah. are mm-hmm. your mother's italian mm-hmm. i mean and yeah. that's just the way. That's Canadian. That's breeding Canadian these days.
6: Totally. And actually, my own influences aren't even the ones that people pick up on all the time. The press release was written by someone else, so she picks up on the Jewish stuff. And you know, there's tons of Italian influence in my music, but you'll
3: never hear anyone talk about it because <laughs> they don't know I'm Italian. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the the sound of both of both <laughs> songs is <laughs> like night and day. Mm. But um, but so fun and so adventurous it seems. Yes, thank you. No problem. <laughs> um, I, I we only have a really brief time, so um, I wanted to ask this about this, the marriage of heaven and hell. Blake, yeah, is yeah. this comes into the album as well? We've
6: got totally like how content was. I was uh, studying the marriage of heaven and hell um, my last semester at SFU. Um, sorry, you be serious. They um, uh, uh, were overrated. in plus school, which will sh- shall not be named. No, I, I, I don't, I don't imagine Ubisoft <laughs> really mind us of you all that much. Anyway, um, yeah, and the thing that came up when I was reading *The Marriage of the Heaven and Hell* is this idea of contraries, because in it you've got devils who are saying very interesting and reasonable things. You've got really sort of stubborn angels, and so it sort of plays with. You know right isn't necessarily right, wrong isn't necessarily wrong, but what it does say is that right and wrong are eternally in battle with each other, and that is a necessary state of being that um, that contraries
3: need need to be in opposition to each other like, it's, like um, we can't exist without the other because how do we define ourselves if there's yeah, a-
6: and it's funny because what what sometimes happens is people want to conflate opposites. They want to mm. say there is no difference. They want to say, well, right isn't always right, and wrong isn't always wrong, so everything is either right or wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than saying, you know, well, which is what what I've been exploring, which is this thing like, well, you know, maybe the lines are arbitrary, but they need to be there. Yeah. So I, I explore that a lot in, in these songs, and um, I look at other contraries, too. I just sort of got interested, and so I started looking at mind and body and... Um, the whole The whole album was so influenced by working with dancers and things mm-hmm. and um sort of getting stuck in my left brain and and trying to um, to find that balance between uh between sort of the rational side and mm. the intuitive creative. side and creative side. Mm-hmm. And, it
3: was really a process. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Well, I, I mean, I, as I said, I mean, I've only got about a minute left, so I've mm-hmm. got to, I've got to just urge everyone to definitely get out to the Ukrainian Hall this Friday. That's eight oh five East Pender. And if anyone
6: wants to find out more about me or get in contact or anything, www.joannacs.com. dot dot com. Joanna
3: That's right, Joanna Chapman Smith. Thank you again for being in here. Thanks for having me. No problem. And thanks to everyone out there for uh, tuning in again for a, to another edition of The Arts Report. I will be right back here next week at 5 o'clock. And if you want a weekend arts update, you can tune into to the news at about 5.45 on Friday, and I'll let you know what's happening around the city. So uh, thanks again for joining me. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the weather while it's still not so wet. And uh, I'll see you again next week.
0: Cineworks Independent Filmmaker Society is excited to present The Soft Revolution, an interactive cinematic installation by Vancouver-based media artists Brian Johnson and Anthony Roberts. A three-channel, vignette-based film, The Soft Revolution's dramatic and often comedic character-driven vignettes based on the Taoist principles of the I Ching show the pivotal experiences of a year in the life of a vibrant, complicated Gulf Islands family. An immersive cinematic experience, the soft revolution explodes the frame of traditional cinema by allowing for avenues of immediacy and improvisation formerly unattainable in the media of film. The show opens on January 22nd at 7pm at the Interurban Gallery on 1 East Hastings Street. The artists will be in attendance.
2: Next Wednesday, January 28th, join Amnesty International for a night of info and entertainment. The evening will highlight local bands and guest speaker Don Wright, the regional coordinator for the Yukon and BC Amnesty International. Entries by donation with proceeds going to victims of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. If you want to learn more about Amnesty, meet great people, and listen to local musicians, come to the gallery in the sub at 7.30pm next Wednesday. Hope to see you there.